Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 16 of Down the Middle, a political podcast. I'm your host, Justin Siegel, and my co-host, as always, is... Rob Leifer. How are you guys? I stopped. I realized I stopped telling people what show it was. And I, and I realized it's not entirely necessary because they definitely clicked on it on purpose. But in case you were wondering, we're still here. It's down the middle. Yes, it's down the middle. And this is episode 16. And I got to say, I mean, Jay has pointed out that I, I do have a knack for naming these episodes. Yeah, if, I, uh, if this podcast thing doesn't, doesn't work out for me, I could, I, could, I could work at Hallmark or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this episode is called Woodward and Bernstein, B-U-R-N. Yeah. And it's, it, it is particularly brilliant, if I, am, uh, if I may yeah, pat myself on horn the back. There, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back for this one because it encompasses, in the title, two of the things, big things we're going to talk about today which is the Woodward uh, revelations about Trump and also the uh, the Bernstein, um, the fires that we're having out West, which is obviously a very big deal. And yeah. the entire title rhymes with 16. So it's episode 16, Woodward and Bernstein. Yes. And the fires happen to be Jewish. So in case you were wondering. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, so yeah, lots. Uh, God, man, it feels like the, the world is imploding, doesn't it? Or exploding, every day. Okay. Every day. It's uh, it yeah. For, for you guys that don't live in L.A., congratulations because it freaking sucks here. I, I I heard a funny thing on on Shapiro, and he actually mm. got it wrong. He was uh he was like you can't go uh inside because of COVID. You can't go outside because of the smoke. So we just hang in our doorway, which would be good for earthquakes. <laughs> but FYI, you're not supposed to be in your doorway for earthquakes. You're, you're supposed, supposed to be to. under a table. So yeah, ben, no, good thing you're, good thing you're moving away because you wouldn't have known what to do in an earthquake. It's very true. It's very true. And you know what? We're going to get to uh, uh, Ben Shapiro and the entire Daily Wire crew moving out of L.A. if you guys haven't heard that. But I want to save that for next week. I have a whole whole blurb I'm already thinking about for All next right, to week. To be continued, so, dot, yeah, dot, that's, dot. Th- that's how much I, I, I prepare for this stuff, guys. Anyway, uh, we have a lot to get to this week. So let's, uh, let's keep it moving right now. Let's go right into Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout. Go. When he growed up this tiny babe. Folks all call him Honest Abe, Abraham, Abraham. All right, Jay, uh, just pitch our capitalist endeavors and let's uh, move on. Yeah, we have a Discord. Talk to us on it. People, talk to us on it. That's all I'm going to say. We need to see more of you. We've seen some of you uh, repeat customers, but we'd love to see some new people uh, pop up on there and ask us questions. We got products. We got mugs. We got travel mugs. We got stay-at-home mugs. We got all kinds of stuff. Shirts buy them our links are in our our bio on our on all our socials and on our blog and on our website we are uh, selling lots of stuff for you to buy and uh we would appreciate it if you uh wore our products and drank your coffee out of our mugs because they're pretty awesome yeah so uh moving on um i want to make a couple corrections from last week i always say I, we, you know we pride ourselves on being as accurate as possible and Indeed. sometimes people let us know that we were inaccurate about something these are all pretty innocuous things but i thought just for the sake of being uh, of accuracy that's what we do here we housekeep exactly so th- this is a housekeeping thing do a so i do a little sweeping so on on last week's episode i said 538 was a polling company uh 538 again is all spelled out they're actually not a polling company and i knew that um, they're a statistical analysis firm. They oh. actually take all the polling companies and uh, analyze all their data. Ooh. So they don't actually do any polling of themselves. So again, very small little 
thing there, but something I definitely thought I should mention. Also, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who we talked about last week, I had said sort of in passing that she was dating, or she had been dating in the past Gavin Newsom. Turns out she was actually married to him. I would pay good money to watch that reality show. It would be it would be really something. Yeah. 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 She just she just moves from one political operator to the next. Good yep. for her. Yeah. Yeah. So she was married to Newsom. Uh, it was a long time ago. Uh, he's been remarried. She is now with Don Jr. Bless their hearts. Um, <laughs> the, the only other thing I, uh, I wanted to, to say was that I got um, hit from actually three different people uh, before Justin had the chance to beep it out. I used the uh, the Lord's name in vain in the beginning of last week's episode. I said, gee, damn. And I guess people thought it was pretty gratuitous and not necessary. I have, if you haven't noticed, a potty mouth. When we first uh, came up with this, the concept of doing a podcast, one of the first questions I said to Jay was, uh, are we going to be allowed to curse? And he was like, well, I'm not going to because, you know, he's a Christian and everything. He's he's. Yeah, he's he's a man of God, and he doesn't want to piss off God. We prefer uh, Messianic Jewess. Messianic Jewess, fine. <laughs> um, but but uh, <laughs> but you know, I remember saying at that point, like, that's not going to be possible for me because it's just part of the vernacular. I'm from New York. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really really hard. So it all comes out naturally. I'm not a religious man, so I apologize very much to anyone who heard that uh, me take the Lord's name in vain and was offended. I will really really try not to do that again. Uh, moving on, we yes. have one more announcement to make for uh, for this Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangout. We have our first event, Jay. Did you know that? I, I heard a rumor in the rumor mm-hmm. mill. Well, we have our first event announcing the very first quadrennial down the middle election night live stream. Oh my yes. gosh. You heard it right. The first quadrennial down the middle election night live stream. So Justin and I decided it would be cool on election night. What is that? November 3rd. Yep. Uh, we uh, Justin's going to come over here uh, only probably because I'm a slightly better cook than he is. And <laughs> slightly is a uh, drastic understatement. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I dabble a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm going to be making some food, finger foods. You know, for, you know, probably chicken wings, things that uh, you you would eat at the Super Bowl. You know, I'm like I'm like on, <laughs> it's a, on be... a fast right now, so that sounds so good. I'd eat yeah, those right it, now. Well, and you, you better not be on a fast for election night, dude. Yeah, no, I won't be. Don't we're we're going to buy one of those little Heineken kegs, and yeah. we're going to set it up by the couch with a live stream, so you guys can watch CNN or Fox or whatever you wa- are going to watch election night on, and you can simultaneously hear our reaction to what's going on. You could be annoyed by my kids, who will be interrupting us all the time, my dog, who will be barking a lot. Uh, you'll see us eating. You'll probably see me in the kitchen. It's going to be fun. It's going to be an experiment. We're we're going to do our first live stream so you can actually see us in person yeah, be because uh, not many of you had. Jay, you better get a haircut before then. Yeah, I really do need to, although I'm not yeah. sure I'm going to be able to. Um, quick question for you. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. What are we going to do when the looters start setting uh, your place on fire? We're going to have to end the live stream. It, I guess it will depend on who wins. If Trump wins, we're in big trouble. But, you know, they're also saying that um, the the full results won't even come in that night. So That's true. this whole live stream might actually be a bust. It might, it might actually <laughs> suck because at the end, you'll, you'll have watched us for like six hours straight. We'll stay streaming until we have a president. So if that's a couple of days, too bad. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, we'll give you more details as that comes uh, closer. And uh, other than that, we have nothing else to talk about. So let's keep it moving with We Care A Lot. All right, we got uh, a regular popping up, liberal tear drinker. 
LTD. You keep LTD. referring it to you keep referring to LTD as a him, but have you ever thought that it could be a her? It very well could be a her. I think I mentioned this before. I thought it was somebody in my my wife's family, but it turns yeah. out it, it actually isn't. I have well, no idea go. who who LTD liberal tear drinker is. I just picture it being a beer drinking bigger dude. I don't know why. Like you, right. you I hear you hear these names and you just. I mean, it it, it takes a, a certain amount of chutzpah to um to call yourself a liberal tear drinker. Yeah, yeah exactly. You got to so, have uh, the mug. Yeah, so liberal tear drinker had a great question. What was it, Jay? The question from LTD. Well, it's not, it's not uh, even a question. It's it's it's, it's a oh, demand. It's a, yeah, it's it's a demand. It's a demand. It certainly yeah. is. It came with an exclamation point and everything. Uh, from LTD is you guys should cover the topic of the politicization of professional sports. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So this is a very very broad topic with a lot of history. Yeah. Um, and this is something we wanted to talk about anyway. We probably could do like seventeen or eighteen different episodes on just this topic. In Easily. fact, I'm pretty sure there are podcasts that just pertain to sports and politics. It's yeah. been going on for a long time now. But we're going to give you sort of an abridged version. Jay's going to give you some history, and then I'm going to go into a little bit of what's going on right now in current events with sports and politics. And uh, for you sports fans out there, hope you enjoy it. So Jay, give us a little bit of the brief history on the collision of sports and politics. Okay, it's going to be a little bit longer than brief, but here we go. As long as there have been nations, there has been political intervention in national and international athletics. Forget about this country for a minute. Let's talk about the Greeks. Hello, Greece was notorious for blending politics with sports. But as far as America goes, we can trace political statements in sports all the way back to 1832, when two horses named Andrew Jackson and Nullifier appeared at the same racetrack in Richmond, Virginia, reflecting the most divisive political debate of the year, which was a constitutional crisis over, over nullification, whether South Carolina could refuse to abide by a federal import tax backed by then-President Andrew Jackson. Now, the Civil War is often cited as the moment when national unity became the political goal of sports. The Star-Spangled Banner was famously played before a ball game for the first time in 1862, and actually there are many instances when uh, northern and southern soldiers played baseball together. But soon after, the long history of sports and politics, peppered too often by members of the black community being forced to stick up for themselves, began. On August 10, 1883, Cap Anson, the owner-manager first baseman of the Chicago White Sox, took his team to Toledo, Ohio to play an exhibition game. He demanded that the Blue Stockings not play Moses Fleetwood Walker, the African-American catcher. Walker happened to be injured at the time, but when informed of Anson's demand, Toledo manager Charlie Morton, a white man, took a stand and started Walker in right field. The game was played, but not without derogatory comments from Anson. That next year, when Toledo joined the American Association, Walker became the first African-American major leaguer upon taking the field against Louisville. However, three years later, the owners enacted a rule barring black players from professional baseball. In 1916, Paul Robeson was a student trying out for the Rutgers football team. After making the team and facing a West Virginia team, Robeson's coach complied to a request from West Virginia to bench the 6'2", 210-pound black man. After his teammates voiced their objections, Coach Foster Sanford refused their request that ultimately came down during the rematch, allowing Robeson to make a game-saving tackle. Of course, most people are familiar with the 1936 Berlin Games, where Harvard track star Milton Green and basketball players from your hometown, Riz, Long Island University, chose not to participate in protest of the horrific anti-Semitism in Germany. If you aren't familiar with that, I'm sure you're familiar with the act of courage by Jackie Robinson and the act of defiance by his general manager, Branch Rickey, when Jackie Robinson opened the doors for so many African-Americans in so many different walks of life. In 1950, the tennis world was rocked when four-time national champion Alice Marble had a letter published in the July issue of American Lawn Tennis Magazine 
backing Florida A&M's Althea Gibson, who was not invited to the U.S. Open, despite being quite clearly worthy of an invitation. She ultimately lost to the reigning Wimbledon champion, but most certainly proved that she belonged. Before the 1961-62 basketball season, Bill Russell and the other black members of the Boston Celtics were refused service at a restaurant in Lexington, Kentucky. Guess what they did, Riz? What did they do? They boycotted the game. Oh, you don't say. Yeah, they sure did. Russell continued to use his platform to speak out against discrimination. If you didn't know about the 1936 Berlin Games or Jackie Robinson, perhaps you've heard of Muhammad Ali. On June 4th, 1967, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, and other prominent black athletes met in Cleveland in a show of support for Muhammad Ali, who had refused induction into the U.S. Army as a conscientious objector. Two weeks later, he was convicted of draft evasion, sentenced to five years in prison, and stripped of his heavyweight title. In 1960, as the podium ceremony for the 200-meter final unfolded, Tommy Smith, the gold medal winner, and John Carlos, silver medal winner, stepped onto the podium wearing black socks and gloves and raised their fists above their bowed heads to silently protest racial discrimination. Now, nine African-Americans on the Syracuse football team decided to sit out the 1970 season in an effort to bring racial equality to the football program, demanding better medical care and stronger academic support. They ultimately succeeded, but not before giving up their prospective NFL careers. In 1973, eight members of an all-black cheerleading squad for Brown refused to stand for the national anthem. 1973, guys, before a March 8th game with Providence College, they were defended by Brown's president, citing their right to free expression. That same year, Billie Jean King brought equality to women's tennis, organizing the Women's Tennis Association and threatening a boycott of the U.S. Open if the prize money for winning the finals was not equal for both men and women. She got her way, of course. In 1996, Denver Nuggets guard Mohamed Abdul-Raouf decided to stop standing for the national anthem. On March 12th, then-NBA commissioner David Stern suspended Abdul-Raouf for his protest. They ended up compromising that Mahmoud could close his eyes and look downward during the anthem, and that's what he did. In 2003, Tony Smith, a senior guard for the Manhattanville College women's basketball team, turned her back to the U.S. flag during the anthem to protest the U.S. involvement in the war in, the war in Iraq. Also during the Iraq War, Carlos Delgado of the Toronto Blue Jays baseball team deliberately took a seat during the seventh-inning stretch rendition of God Bless America, saying, I don't stand because I don't believe in the war. In 2012, one of two Americans on the Stanley Cup-winning Boston Bruins hockey team, because why would there be Americans on the Boston Bruins hockey team, goalie Tim Thomas bowed out of a White House visit with President Barack Obama, stating, I believe the federal government has grown out of control, threatening the rights, liberties, and property of the people. Since then, we have seen the Miami Heat basketball team don hooded sweatshirts to protest Drayvon Martin. The then St. Louis Rams players jog onto the field with their hands up in protest of Michael Brown. LeBron James and other NBA players wear I Can't Breathe shirts in 2014 to protest Eric Garner. Cleveland Browns wide receiver Andrew Hawkins protesting Tamir Rice. Carmelo Anthony protesting Freddie Gray. And the list goes on. Finally, if you haven't heard of the 1936 Berlin Games or Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali, Perhaps you've heard about August 26, 2016, when the then San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem before his preseason debut against the Green Bay Packers, and I shall leave this right there. Excellent, excellent job. That was almost like a buzzed history that wasn't a buzzed history. It was. It was not officially. Not officially, yeah. anyway. So you guys are very lucky on this episode because you're going to get an actual buzzed history later. So it's like two for the price of one. Who doesn't like a deal? I, I no. wish I was paid by the word. I know, right? So obviously, politics and sports have been a thing for a very, very long time. And I think uh, it's gotten more divisive as we have moved forward in history. 
Yeah, there are outlier examples that you were talking about in your uh, in your history lesson there um, of when leagues, entire leagues did get on board with this movement. But I think what's different right now is that I think professional athletes have always been engaged in politics on their own time in their personal lives. And because many of them are public figures, uh, their politics or their activism was widely known. The public could then decide whether or not they were interested in following these athletes' political endeavors. But if they weren't interested for whatever reason, people do tend to disagree about an array of political issues. They didn't necessarily have to turn on the TV on a Sunday afternoon and be unwillingly bludgeoned with those political messages. So I think that's what's really changed. So let's go through some of the specifics on what we've been seeing in the last few weeks. So we'll bring it up to today, okay? Okay. The NBA... Um, The NBA and its Players Association agreed on social justice messages that can be displayed on the back of the jerseys. Uh, The list of the approved suggested social messages for the back of the NBA jerseys are as follows. Black Lives Matter, Say Their Name, Vote, I Can't Breathe, Justice, Peace, Equality, Freedom, Enough, Power to the People, Justice Now, Say Her Name, Yes We Can, Liberation, See Us, Hear Us, Respect Us, Love Us, Listen, Listen to Us, Stand Up, Ally, Anti-Racist, I Am a Man, Speak Up, How Many More, Group Economics, whatever the heck that means. Oh, I want Uh, that on my jersey. (laughs) Group Economics, Education Reform, and Mentor. Okay, so the 29 different messages are intended to help keep the focus on topics such as police brutality and systemic racism. The NBA and the MBPA, which is the Players Association, agreed that shedding light on these issues will be a shared goal of the 2019-2020 season. Quote, the league and the players are uniquely positioned to have a direct impact on combating systemic racism in our country, and we are committed to collective action to build a more equal and just society. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said, a shared goal of our season restart will be to use our platform in Orlando to bring attention to these important issues of social justice. Now, after the Jacob Blake incident, LeBron James spearheaded the idea of boycotting the game entirely, and the players walked off for that moment, if you remember. Uh, None of that actually stuck. They went back to playing and instead sort of settled on a message of, quote, get out and vote. Uh, According to NBA.com, arenas and stadiums around the country will be used as polling and voting centers for the 2020 election. Now, I am all for this. When you say you're all for this, you mean the last thing you said? Yes, the last thing I said. Okay. Frankly, making it exceedingly easy to vote is the GOP's worst worst nightmare. And we're going to, I don't want to get into voting too much here because we are going to do an entire episode about voting next week. But I think we can all agree that the NBA wants you to vote for Democrats. And they're using their platform to make it easy for you um, or easier for Mm -hmm. you. Uh, Let's just say they're not down with no one saying vote for Republicans. Okay, Uh, now, does this piss a lot of the fans off? Of course it does. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about what some of the other sports are doing. So the, the NFL Uh, approved printing social justice messages in the end zone of every stadium. So now you have BLM and a bunch of other slogans printed in the end zones. Now, that's very political, especially since the true motivations of BLM have come into question recently. Roger Goodell, who's the commissioner of the NFL, 
was very much opposed to this kind of stuff in the past. But like so many corporations do these days, he did cave to the pressure, most of which was probably coming from the players. And I'm not commenting on whether or not this is a bad thing or a good thing. I'm just pointing out that based on his previous attitude to this kind of stuff, he's had a change of heart. And it's very, it was very obvious and very quick. As right. Well, it, when you really look at the timeline. Very, very much so. And here's a clip of what Goodell had to say about it and his very noticeable change in tone. Here you go. It has been a difficult time for our country, in particular, black people in our country. First, my condolences to families of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and all the families who have endured police brutality. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. I personally protest with you and want to be part of the much needed change in this country. Without black players, there would be no National Football League. And the protests around the country are emblematic of the centuries of silence, inequality, and oppression of black players, coaches, fans, and staff. We are listening. I am listening. And I will be reaching out to players who have raised their voices and others on how we can improve and go forward for a better and more united NFL family. Okay, so that is some very, very politically charged rhetoric, right? Yeah, even before you get in there, I really, like a pet peeve of mine, please mm -hmm. people use a dictionary and figure out the difference between systematic and systemic. They are different words. They are. It's hard. I And you know what? I've been guilty of the same thing, so I'm not going to knock them too much for that. But but thank you for that, Jay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, first, <laughs> you know, uh, Goodell sends condolences to the to the family of Jacob Blake in that statement. And we already went over the problem with that last week. I mean, Jacob Blake has been accused of raping a woman. Yeah. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that what he experienced isn't tragic, but it's another situation where it may be smarter to wait for all the details to come in. You well, know? again, there's also, you know, there's there's a uh, evidence to both sides of the of the mm -hmm. argument right here that there was a good shoot it wasn't and so before we know the answer to that it's really not good to hold him up in that way right very good point he then says that the nfl condemns the the systemic oppression of black people those are very very strong words i mean yeah. because i can absolutely say and have said that there are institutions in america that have systemically deprived communities of color from participating in the american dream uh, you know as we've talked about in the past but using the term systemic oppression to talk about in 2020 is something that i think a lot of americans have a problem with in a country that elected a black president overwhelmingly twice and has black athletes that make tens of millions of dollars now that does not mean there aren't disparities to speak of and to address, but it's the idea that our entire system is so institutionally racist. It's that idea that I think a lot of people have a problem with, because what is the only solution, Jay, for fixing a system that is irreparably broken? Uh, get rid of it. Yeah, destroying the system. Yeah. And I think the majority of Americans, me included, by the way, still see this country as the greatest country on earth 
still see our system as the greatest system on earth. So when the spokesperson for one of the biggest corporations in the world, the NFL, is saying things like that, I think it makes a lot of Americans angry, including, by the way, many black Americans yeah. who don't see this, don't see their lives through that scope, okay? Uh, but the most important part of that statement from Goodell is when he says, quote, we, the NFL, admit we were wrong for not listening to the players earlier. If you remember, Roger Goodell was very much opposed to players kneeling for the national an- anthem, and I don't think it was for any real ideological reasons. I don't think Goodell has any ideology. He's sort of like Trump. He doesn't have an ideology. I think it's because ultimately, and I hate to say it, but it's bad for business. Yeah, you know? that's exactly right. That, that, that's what it is. I personally understand and support the players who were kneeling, but I'm also mature enough I'm a mature enough adult to simultaneously understand that it ain't good for the NFL's brand. You know, two things could be true at once, Jay. So many, many Americans don't like this. They just don't like it. It makes them feel weird. It makes them feel gross and it makes them want to turn off the TV. But the NFL, just like so many other corporations, did ultimately end up caving to the pressure. And as you'd expect, the ratings this season are already at historic lows. Yeah, they dropped radically. Really radically. So, So last week at the Texans and Chiefs game, the players simply just locked arms in unity during the national anthem. And even that was met with booze from the crowd. Now I was going to play a clip of the booze here, but I realized it, it just sounds like a few thousand people booing, which everyone has heard. So yeah. I was like, I, it's really not necessary for you all to hear it. And I mean, you know, take what our word sounds like, yeah, take our word for it or go look it up on YouTube. Uh, the point is this, okay. Sports used to be the one time of the day, the one time of the week, the one time of the year, if you only watched the Super Bowl, where we all kind of got together and it was about sports, barbecue, and beer, okay? Now, sports are an escape for a lot of people, escape from their work and their everyday lives, their boring lives, their stressful lives, whatever's going on in their lives, their kids. I think there is a substantial portion of our population that puts on football on Sunday sees all the overtly political messaging from the actual corporation, not from just the players, and says to themselves, I get enough of this from watching CNN and Fox. I don't need to engage in it on the weekend. Click, I'll go rollerblading instead with my kids. You know, and, and that's it. What are we in Florida in the 90s? Hey, I have rollerblades, Jay. Come on. I mean, so do I. I just don't yeah. use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that's a whole other story. Maybe we'll do a video of me rollerblading one day. It's really funny. I'd like to see that. Anyway, one more thing. Um, Baseball, the MLB, has historically stayed out of politics and has really avoided the kneeling and the virtue signaling, unlike most of the other sports. But Mm -hmm. in the wake of Jacob Blake, they also started moving on this. So here's a video of my team. I'm I'm not a huge sports fan, but uh, I'd say I'm kind of a moderate sports fan, and I'm a huge baseball fan. My team is the LA Dodgers. By the way, this is the Dodgers year, Jay. I don't know if you've heard that. They're uh, in first place, actually. Yeah, right. they're in first place. Now, unfortunately, they're going to win this year without any crowd. So it's kind of anticlimactic. Uh, but anyway, I was shocked when I saw this video. Uh, they were the L.A. Dodgers released this It's featuring all of the players on the team and uh, went something like this. For centuries, the black community has lived in a different America. Instead of addressing racism, inequality and injustice, many of us just look away. We ignore the school to prison pipeline that criminalizes black children instead of connecting them to opportunities. It's easy to say racism is a thing of the past. But it's not, especially when black people don't enjoy the full protections afforded by the Constitution. As proud Americans, how much longer can we avoid an honest look in the mirror? Equality is at bat. Together, we must learn and grow. We don't know the exact answers, 
but we are committed to working, listening, and amplifying black voices to be a part of the solution. There are organizations on the ground fighting for resources that the black community deserves, and we're here to support them. It's up to each and every one of us. We can't just look away because it's uncomfortable. Loving this country means admitting it's not the same for us all. Silence is no longer an option. I'm fighting for my teammates and their families and their communities. And that is why we must unapologetically say that Black Lives Matter. Quality is a team sport. The players of the Los Angeles Dodgers are committed to amplifying the voices of black leaders and organizations who are on the ground fighting for equality. By matching fund raised from the In This Together t-shirts, we will proudly support the California funders for boys and men of color. I need to talk to uh, the guy doing the music beds for these because we need to have a serious conversation. Yeah, I, think yeah, I know, seriously. Now, you know, for the casual uh, sort of observer out there, you might have heard that and thought, well, what's the big deal? They're saying all really nice things. And, and you know, I think a lot of people probably think that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might even agree with you, uh, you know, somewhat. The, but the message that all of these players, teams and franchises are putting out is that America in its current form is a deeply and systemically racist place. And what we can say for sure is that whether or not you agree with this, we can all agree that at least 50% of Americans don't feel this way about America. And increasingly, the way you feel about this issue is suggestive of the political party you align yourself with. And I think the Democrats need to think long and hard if they want this to be their message is thinking about America as a hopelessly racist place, a winning political message. I don't know. Um, I'm going to go with a no. That's a terrible idea. And um, keep your politics out of my sports, man. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the funny thing is, and we were sort of saying this when we were playing the clip to each other, that so much of what you hear is sloganeering. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's I'm it. going to repeat the slogans of the day. I have all these, if you notice the, both those clips, the Goodell clip and, and the Dodgers clip, they use the term Black Lives Matter. Um, again, Black Lives Matter has some controversy. It really does. And, and no one's doing the research on it. No one's looking yep. this stuff up. If they did, I guarantee you they'd find some other things to say. There are other things to say. And right. why not use the vernacular of, your league or what people know you for instead of just doing all the todayisms. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it, it speaks to virtue signaling. It speaks to yeah. knee jerking because it shows that you're not injecting your own character into this. You're just kind of like, you know, extracting what's happening in, in culture and you're utilizing it to your benefit. And I don't think everyone sees right through that. Exactly. There's, there's a sense that I get that it's not truly sincere that they're doing it because they have to, and yeah. they're checking the boxes of the vernacular that they have to use. You know, we have to say BLM, right. we ha- you know, there's, there's a bunch of slogans the they have yeah. to say, the list. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of people do see through it. I think a lot of people are tuning out Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not suggesting you sh- uh, are to anyone in our audience that you should be one of those people. Uh, and maybe you think all of this stuff is great. And that's fine. That's your right, too. I'm just pointing out that um, this current collision of sports and politics is very toxic to a lot of people in this country. And uh, that's something we all should think about if we want to unite again one day, because sports has always been something that united us. Isn't that right, Jay? That's absolutely true. It is. It is a great uniter. And it's it's really it's horrible to see the sport sporting industry sort of taking a side. I don't think that that's necessary in order for them to do their job. Right. But, you know, ultimately, I'm going to go with the fact that I don't really know the correct answer for any of this stuff. 
And speaking of which, speaking of the fact that there are certain things I don't know, we have a new segment for you today. And it's called I Don't Know. Okay, so this segment is called I Don't Know, and it's a place for either of us to say, you know what, I don't know what the answer is. Because it's always acceptable to admit that you're ignorant on a particular subject. Isn't that true, Jay? That's true. Uh, You know, feel free uh, anytime. Uh, Mm -hmm. The invitation is open for both of us. Right, right. And it's a character builder to say, you know, you, uh, I think you're looked upon as a better person if you could say, I don't know the answer to that. What is the answer? Let's discuss. Yeah, we can't, we can't pretend like we have all the answers to some of them. Exactly. (laughs) Just most of them, except for the ones we don't know. Exactly. Uh, So for this first installment of I Don't Know, we sort of continue forward on the topic we were just discussing regarding sports and politics and whether or not America is systemically racist. That's the big question. Mm -hmm. Now, I was struck by something that Ben Shapiro said on his show a few days ago. And after he said it, I was I basically thought about it for like three or four hours. I was entirely, I wasn't entirely sure how I felt about it uh, or if I thought he was right in his assessment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I sort of realized that there's a good reason for my ignorance on this particular topic and I sort of got it out of my head. So let's get to what he said first. Uh, It was in response to a question that Joe Biden was asked about racism in policing. I'm going to play the question and answer from Biden first to give you some context, and then we'll give you Shapiro's take on it. It went something like this. Do you believe there is systemic racism in law enforcement? Absolutely. But it's not just in law enforcement, it's across the board. It's in housing, it's in education, it's in everything we do. It's real, it's genuine, it's serious. Look, not all law enforcement officers are racist. My Lord, there's some really good, good cops out there. But the way in which it works right now, we've seen too many examples of it. Okay, that, that, that is the most useless statement in the world. Sure, there are some good cops, but the system itself is bad. Okay, this is the precise polar opposite of the truth which is that there are some good cops, there are some bad cops, but the system overall is good. If you say the system overall is good and there are some bad cops, that means we can target the bad cops for removal. If there are some good cops, but the system overall is bad, that means the minute you pin on that shield, the minute that you put on the blue uniform, you are now part of the bad system. Okay, so the question is, is the system under which law enforcement generally operates today in the United States a good system that has a few bad apples? or Is it a systemically racist and bad system that has some good apples in Mm -hmm. it? You know what, Jay? What's that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And you know why I don't know? Well, because, yeah, I'll tell you. Well, because I'm not a police officer. I've never been through the training. Mm -hmm. I am completely ignorant as to what they've been taught in police academy i can't purport to walk in any of their shoes i couldn't possibly relate to what it's like to patrol a dangerous neighborhood i am not the right guy to pontificate on what needs to be changed in regard to law enforcement practices it is above my pay grade Mm -hmm. on the other end i am also 
completely ignorant as to what it's like to be a person of color or to live in a high crime neighborhood or to have insufficient access to safe living conditions uh, and quality food and opportunity and to have police helicopters shining lights in my house when I didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. So I am not the right guy to pontificate on that end either. I'm a Jewish guy from the North Shore of Long Island. So you know what? Maybe all of us, with the exception of the law enforcement community and minority communities, should just shut the f*** up and let them work it out together. And that includes Ben Shapiro, by the way. Because frankly, it's probably insulting to both cops and black people when all of us who can't relate to either group are constantly giving our opinions on the matter. And that's really all I got to say about that, Jay. I think that that's right on. Yeah. Uh, you sounded like the guy from Princess Bride for a minute when you're like, uh, and I don't know anything about cops, and so I can't put the cup in front of me. And I don't know anything about black people, so I clearly can't put the cup in front of you. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Exactly. Yeah, you, that's a little bit of culture corner you, bro you brought in there. It was, it was. Good it job. Was. But yeah. my point is this. This is such a nuanced issue. The, the question you're asking is wrong. Is our system good or bad? You can't say that. There's so much in that question that you have to, to sort of put out in front of you to mm -hmm. really determine that. And it's, you know, when you talk about reforms, are you saying the system's good or bad, needs to be changed? I mean, there's just so much to this. That's why I don't buy into Shapiro's very blanket no, sort of explanation that, that it's a good system with some bad apples. Because we, we had that talk with, um, with Hawk Newsom yeah. that stuck in my mind yes, because, know, it you know, he, you. yeah, it, it made a, a real impact because his whole thing was that these, the system under which the police are operating, even if they are good people, the mm -hmm. system itself is a system that dates back to slavery and a system that hasn't been adapted at all to fit our current situation. So, but again, I'm not, I can't say if that's true because I'm not in law enforcement. I just don't have the knowledge of it enough. Yeah. No, I'll tell you what is bad, what Ben did. You can't yeah. blanket statement something. If there's anything we have learned in doing this podcast is that there is nuance to all of these conversations and debates right. and to blankets, uh, uh, to blanket statement something like this, as nuanced as this needs to be, you're really doing a disservice to everyone involved, you're doing a disservice to both parties, and you're doing a disservice to the conversation. So I, I completely agree with, with what you're saying. And also, I agree with I am also a Jew and, yeah. and, and not a cop. And so right. there, there's very little, you know, I sort of point back to what I saw um, on YouTube, and I can put this link up for everyone, because it's pretty fascinating. Um, someone who is part of the Black Lives Matter movement, a civil rights leader went through a police training program, and they put him in positions where he had to choose, do I shoot or do I employ something else and he chose right. shoot almost every single time and he changed the way he thought about this and so it's an interesting video to watch and it does show a black man in a situation where he's being trained and so yeah. there are both of those things you see colliding and so yeah. that's interesting so it, it just you, you can't really comment on this until you're in it totally nothing would make me happier on this subject than to see a group of dispossessed cops who feel threatened and feel like they're being demonized by the entire world to sit down with a group of dispossessed minority yeah. people who feel like they're being threatened by mm -hmm. the police and have them just talk it out. Yeah. You know, I want them to work it out between them. Because frankly, like I said, it has nothing to do with the rest of us. I think it's great. I think it's yeah. great. It's right on. Right. That's right. On. Right. So let's get, let's uh, get it together. So next week we'll have a roundtable discussion. <laughs> yeah. Cops in the black community.
Exactly. Yeah. Don't hold us to that. Maybe a couple yeah. weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, sort of piggybacking off the idea of the professional athletes giving us all their opinions on politics in the same kind of spirit, uh, we have a new segment for you that we think will be bringing back as regularly as possible. This new segment is called Shut Up and Sing. Let's do it. I was told not long ago that I can't talk the way I do. Singers shouldn't share their current affairs or world abuse Saying something off the wall just might be in folks out of shape Hardworking people spend the paychecks to show up and escape So put a plug in what you think Man, shut up and sing Okay, shut up and sing, shut up and act, shut up and dribble. You've heard all of them. Now, whenever anyone with a public persona not directly linked to politics decides to speak out on politics, it always seems to trigger people who believe their opinions should be kept to themselves and that they should be seen and not heard. In this new segment, we will attempt to engage with musicians, actors, artists, and athletes who make a living outside of politics but still choose to voice their opinions on politics. So, Jay, tell us who we've got this week. So this week, to kick off our segment, we got Samira Armstrong, uh, who's an actress and singer. She's known for her roles in Stay Alive, the OC, which I watched religiously. Uh, it's a boy-girl thing, and she's known uh, as being Juliet Darling in the ABC television series Dirty Sexy Money. She's appeared on television as Elaine Richards in the ABC fantasy drama Resurrection, and she's been in music videos for uh, Hanson and Daniel Powder. She's a great guest, and you guys are really going to love uh, our conversation with her. Yeah, and we sat down a little earlier today to talk with her. Here's what that sounded like. Uh, as I mentioned, this week's guest is Samira Armstrong, actress, musician, and mom. Oh, Welcome to the show, Samira. Thank you so much. Thank you. So to kick us off, why don't you tell us what kind of feedback you've received since you recently decided to speak out publicly about politics? To the point of what the title of this uh, subject matter is, I loathe celebrities speaking out in politics. Mm. For the most part, they have no idea what they're talking about. It's one of the reasons, you know, I think it's important that people keep their mouth shut because, when they have such a big platform because people listen to them. Now, there's obviously, it's interesting because a person with brain power can then be assassinated by character if he speaks out. There's a delicacy to coming out and speaking your opinion. I put a lot of thought into it, 20 years actually, you know, and I really did it right now because I think it's such an important time to get like what you guys are doing, a fair and balanced conversation going, you know, especially in the last, well, since, since I moved out here, I remember Bush was uh, elected again and there was hysteria in my yoga class. And I was like, okay, I get the message. You know, we, we don't have this conversation here. You will be ostracized. And, and that's a, a, a notion that's been going around. I, I think Hollywood has been very much sort of hijacked by the, the far left. It, they're out of touch for sure because yeah. they don't live the normal lives of either Democrats or yes. Republicans, yeah. you know, yeah. generally. Right. Um, but I think... Uh, the Democrats, and Justin and I have talked about this on the show, the Democrats have sort of become a celebrity party. I think yes. it really it really hit home with Obama, where yes. Hollywood looked at Obama as a celebrity, you mm -hmm. know, as one of them. Mm -hmm. So, it, and I think since then, it's really just been on a snowball where, where they can't see conservatives as one of them. It's all right. 
the, the super progressive values, which is fine. I happen to be a progressive. I'm a liberal, but I am not cool with people not being able to speak their mind or and or losing their job because of it. That's something that I'm totally against. Yeah. And that's not just in Hollywood. I get message from people all over the country and actually for the world, for that matter, saying mm -hmm. that the, you know, the far left has silenced any other voice than their own. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of echo chambers happening right now, for sure. Yeah. It was a crescendo of moments where I was like, this is, this has got to stop. And I kept looking around being like, well, who's going to do it? Is someone, is someone going to speak up? No, nobody was examining anything. There was, there was uh, no sense of critical thinking. There was no reality involved. There was just narrative, take it, sit down, post something, shut up. I've never literally until like two nights ago, I turned on Fox for, Fox News for the first time. I never watched the news. I mm -hmm. never wanted to be a part of it. I thought it was disgusting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super curious where I, you know, think believe that I got my independent thinking from. Yeah. You know what I mean? On that topic, we do want to talk a little more about what you have experienced, it, you know, as somebody who has a public persona. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the backlash. Like, has it been really nasty? Has it been severe? Have you lost any gigs because of it? All that. I kind of went at it in a kamikaze sense. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, it's do or die. I, I'm going to go for it. If I lose, I'm accepting losing everything. Like, there's so many opportunities in life now. Like, nobody has to stay in Los Angeles to make something of themselves. Mm -hmm. You can go to Texas. You can. I've lost nothing if I've lost everything, you know? That was like a, a choice. Of, it was fairly easy to make. In terms of bullies, I actually get a kick out of the dialogue with these people. And and I also like my favorite thing is someone coming at me hard and fast, me coming back and then be like, hey, do you want to talk about it really though? DM me, uh, you know? Because yeah, that's, that's the whole point. You know yeah. what I mean? But can you tell us like, are there any extremes that have happened? Like, have you gotten any death threats or anything? Oh, not yet. No, okay, I, okay. I've been coming out slowly over the last two weeks. The last two days, those were all of my stories in the last two days in my actual feed. Um, so it's only really two days of so no death threats, okay. but a lot of a lot of people really disappointed in in me. And also, um, I'm white privilege. I don't know what I'm talking about. These are white people telling me this, by the way. Right. And I have black friends, and they're not like tripping on them. A lot of them think I'm weird, but no one's like. You're, you need to die, you know? Well, the irony is that, you know, at least in my experience, having black friends myself, is that they care less about white privilege than any white people. I yeah. Think. Right. <laughs> That's the funny exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the person who was the most mad at me mm. is a white male yeah. who is like, you're causing so much divisiveness. This is actually prior to the last two posts. Prior to that, it was just like, you know, it's okay to be a patriot, guys. You know, it's, a pa it's okay to be pro-American. Like, you know, just like these little subtle things. This guy's a really good friend of mine. And he was like watching every move I was doing because it was not in sync with his way of thinking. He called me an he said I was making a fool of myself. He said, I, I, I don't know how to think for my, I mean, he berated me. This was one of my really good friends. And so far that would probably be the most confusing. I, I, you know, eventually would like to stop thinking about it because it, it's hurtful because sure. it's not meant to be towards him. Like here I'm trying to like break a crack in the window to hopefully get other people to speak out loud. And, and one of my best friends is like, shut up. That sort of leans into my next question. How do you feel about your decision now that you're on the other side of it? 
I feel so incredible. I feel so free. I mean, this is 20 years of silence. You know, there's like this weird sense of secrecy that you have to exist in. I can deal with it. It's not a big deal. But now that things are kind of going sideways, I feel like there's something worth fighting for, especially our freedom of speech. I've come out in support of our president and people like wrote me again from all over the world saying, well, I'm so confused. You seem like such an independent feminist. And I'm like, I mean, I've never claimed feminism. I'd- you could be both. Yeah. That's yeah. The thing. But, I, yeah. but also like I'm, I am independent. That's why mm-hmm. I'm saying these things. Right, and right. hopefully if anything that people will see, the reason I made the choice, there's like a, a, a value of importance to me behind it. So the, they could examine and be like, oh, that's really crazy of her to do that. She doesn't seem like an insane person. There might be something to what she's saying. Once yeah. we have these conversations, and this is, the, I think the whole point is like, you, if you can talk to the people who weren't quite sure and really open up their mind. Well, here's the thing. You're not going to find anyone who hates Trump more than me. But with that said, I love freedom of speech yeah. more than I hate Trump. Yeah, beautiful. I love the idea that you should be able to speak your mind more without even consequence. If, even if you were just even if you just came on here and said Trump 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 is the best yeah. since Lincoln, yeah. you know, I would still love that more than I hate Trump. So, yeah, That's great. without consequence. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I feel like if we all got to that place mentally, we would all just be in such a better place where we just can accept that. Yes, and it used to be like that at one point. I mean, that's what we were raised on, you know? That's what we we understood. Like everybody has their own opinion. We're not going to get it, go to war over it. I mean, right. but now we're going to war over it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell us where we can find you on social media and find all these posts and tell us what you have coming up that we can keep an eye out for. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, samira.xoxo, S-A-M-A-I-R-E at uh, whatever. You can find me on Instagram. And you can, <laughs> I'll, I'll post it on our blog. Okay, you can find me on Twitter too. I just released a movie um, with Ryan Phillippe called The Second. It, it's out on uh, streaming platforms. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I have no clue what's to come, uh, you know, in the future. I, I, this COVID has, I was doing a bunch of uh, short films myself and my entire creativity has been sucked into understanding sure. what's going on in the world right now. I've, I've literally, oh I've like got yeah. notes and like, you know, like yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm deep, I've gone deep. I'm like, um, I'm a homeland basically. Like, right, right. you know, but we'll have you back. You know, we're going to do a whole, uh, a whole episode one of these days about conspiracy theories that we've been talking about for a long time. Oh my so, God. Yeah. I, I would love yeah. to. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. We'll yeah. definitely okay. have you back for that. But thank right. you so much thank for coming you. on. Thank we'll you. you okay. All right. Bye, guys. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Okay. Bye. Bye. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. Got a little bit of insight. We want to say that we were uh, we were actually surprised that she was of the right because that's pretty rare here in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, we are going to absolutely attempt to have right wingers and left wingers and people of uh, you know, artists of all stripes and athletes of all stripes to come on the show and and talk about why they decided to speak out and their experience in speaking yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, so, as you heard, it's it's kind of like aisle side agnostic. It's we want this segment to be about uh, the person's experience when speaking out, not necessarily right. you know about what side of the aisle they're on. Exactly. So let's keep it moving. We're going to bring back a segment we brought in last week for the first time. It was a very successful segment. A lot of people said they loved it. And it is called Bonehead of the Week. (laughs) 
So your bonehead of the week is your very own Donald J. Trump. <laughs> okay, so Donald J. Trump, President Donald J. Trump, is the bonehead of the week for his decision to sit down for 18 hours of on-the-record interviews with Mr. Bob Woodward. President 18 hours. <laughs> now, this is going to be a much more serious bonehead of the week than it was last week with Crazy Nancy because this is a much more serious thing, in my opinion. And note that I did call her Crazy Nancy because I just don't care. So uh, <laughs> sue me. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we need to talk about these these Bob Woodward interviews with Trump. It would be uh, a dereliction of our duty if we didn't bring them up. And I know that you may be sick of it already if you watch a lot of news. And I know that we've said many times that we want our podcast to be more about bigger ideological issues. However, we couldn't call ourselves a serious political podcast if we didn't cover what happened last week. It's just got too many implications. Yeah. So rather than me taking you into everything that was said on the Woodward tapes, let me get my boy Chuck Todd from Meet the Press on NBC to do it for you. Chuck Todd, go. President Trump doing damage control, defending his choice to mislead the public and knowingly play down the coronavirus for months, at the same time acknowledging its seriousness to Bob Woodward in private. You just breathe the air. That's how it's uh, passed. It's also more deadly than your... You know, your, even your strenuous flus, this is deadly stuff. But publicly... We're finding very little problem, very little problem. Now, you treat this like a flu. To Woodward? Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. But publicly... Young people are almost immune to this disease. The younger, the better. The president admitted to Woodward he intentionally minimized the danger. The vast majority of Americans, the risk is very, very low. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. To me, this is the most damning thing a president has ever said on tape, but we'll get into that in a minute. First, I want to just point out the disparity between the overall left-wing pundit reaction to these Woodward revelations and the right-wing pundit reaction, because I think it's important. So here's a clip of the guys from Pod Save America. They are the largest sort of left-wing pod in the country, and they're talking about these interviews. Please, please listen closely. To me, the comments about the pandemic are the most damning because the president knowingly lied to the public about the severity of a virus that has now killed almost 200,000 Americans. Um, what what was your reaction to these comments? It's like, I know we're not supposed to be shocked anymore by anything, but this is pretty damn shocking. It is, I mean, on every level of it, but you have the president on tape admitting that he lied to the American people and people died as a result. I mean, it's not, this is not anonymous sources tell sketchy former now disillusioned Trump aid something. This is Donald Trump on tape saying that he downplayed the virus uh, and lied to the American people. It is, I mean, it is open and shut and is incredibly disturbing and the consequences are devastating. I think, you know, I see a lot of people say, of course, Trump lied. We've, we've all known that. But I think there was always a question as to whether Trump was just lying to himself, too, yeah. <laughs> about the virus, as if he was just actually thinking, it's not that bad. I'm going to buy a bunch of conspiracies that you know, wackos on Fox tell me, and it's actually going to be fine. And he's in a bubble. No, 
That none of that is true. He knew. He knew how deadly it was. He knew it was harmful to children. As he's talking about opening schools and how children are almost immune. We everyone, even Trump supporters, some of Trump supporters, take what he says with a grain of salt. But they sort of see him as, and I think a lot of the press sees him this way, which is just like he is dishonest, but he is sincere. Right. Like he is lot like the words he's saying are inaccurate in their lies, but they bespeak a like what he's actually feeling like he is. He does not want to believe that this is bad. So he has convinced himself that it's not. So he is saying things. But what we're actually finding here is he, he undertook a very specific and deliberate strategy to lie in order to minimize the political and economic impact of what would happen. Right. Keep the stock market up. Keep his poll numbers up. And if people, including children, die. So be it, because he's so unable to think through the consequences to anyone other than himself in any situation that you end up in this place. I mean, it is the most stunning thing a president has ever said on tape, and I include the Watergate tapes in that. Uh, well, who you just heard right there is Dan Pfeiffer. Um, these guys are no political lightweights. They've been around for a while, and uh, and they really don't have a, much of a dog in the fight in, in terms of uh, working for an administration or anything. They're just podcasters. Uh, what Dan Pfeiffer says there at the end is, to me, 100% true. The most stunning thing a president has ever said on tape, and that's including Watergate. Now, I 1,000% agree with that take that, that you just heard, but we wanted to, in the spirit of down the middle, give you a right-wing pundit's take on it, and true to our usual form, we're going to give you Ben Shapiro, because he, again, is considered the most intelligent and measured of the right-wing pundits. It wouldn't be fair to us to give you Sean Hannity or something, uh, who just had a stupid take. So here's Ben Shapiro twisting himself into a pretzel to kind of sort of make excuses for the president of the United States. It's a rather long clip, but I do think it's important for you guys to hear. So please bear with us and uh, take a listen. Donald Trump has a couple of personality flaws that come out in nearly every interview, and they can make for a very toxic combination. Personality flaw number one, the man has never admitted he was wrong ever. He is never wrong. According to Donald Trump, he has never had reason to repent before God. According to Donald Trump, he has never done a thing in his entire career that is wrong. And... Personality flaw number two, he engages in puffery. So everything is superlative. It's either the worst or the best. Is it spectacular or unbelievable or garbage? There is no in-between for President Trump. When you combine those two personality flaws, one, he's never done anything wrong with two, his penchant for puffery, you end up with some very unfortunate quotes about COVID. And that is what happened here with regard to Bob Woodward's book. Now, here is the thing about all the stuff that Trump was saying on February 7th. If Trump had come out publicly and said that the virus was airborne on February 7th, everybody rightly would have said that this was not actually, this was not actually supremely telling because Donald Trump has said a lot of things about COVID, many of which are inaccurate. He is on tape with Woodward on February 7th, where he said that the virus is dangerous and that it is, it is airborne and that it could kill a lot of people. Now, again, how much of that is Trump conveying what he actually knew and how much of that is Trump misconveying what he had heard? We've seen enough of his press conferences to know that he was constantly giving, you know, either best case or worst case scenario and nothing in between. There was never any moderate rhetoric coming from Trump about the about the virus. But he did on February 7th, apparently, say that it was airborne. And Woodward says this was a damning missed opportunity for Trump to reset the leadership clock after he was told this was a once in a lifetime health emergency. OK, and then there is a, another tape that emerged a little bit later on, this would be March 19th. And in this later tape, 
Trump was asked by Woodward, what changed between you know, February and March where he really started to ramp up the rhetoric? Now, the normal answer here is the information changed, right? That is the normal answer. Back in February, we had basically zero death, not basically, we had zero identified deaths from COVID in the United States in February at that point. It was only later we realized that we may have had some deaths from COVID that we hadn't properly identified, but there were double-digit cases in the United States as of February. There were very low double-digit deaths as of early March. All Trump had to say here is, we got new information, and therefore I changed my, my feelings about the virus. But again, go back to those two personality flaws. Trump has never been wrong, according to Trump. And two, everything is either the worst or the best. Well, that means that what you're about to hear him say fits well within his personality foibles. One, he has never been wrong at any point in time. He is omniscient and therefore knew from the very beginning how deadly this virus was, which leads him to have to now explain, okay, if you knew it was that deadly, then why exactly didn't you talk about it? Which leads him to say, well, the reason I didn't talk about it is because I didn't want to panic everybody, which is a pretty weak excuse. I mean, honestly, if you knew that things were super duper bad back in February, you should have said so because Americans ought to be trusted with information. I don't care if you're a Democrat president or a Republican president. If you know really bad information that affects Americans, you have a responsibility to pass that along to Americans. It is not your job to tell us whether or not to panic. It is your job to tell us exactly what we are needing to know so we can make our own risk assessments. Okay. Uh, Now, I'm glad that he's at least willing to call Trump out for his BS excuse of not wanting to incite panic. Everyone knows that's crazy. Uh, However, most of that clip from Shapiro is the same exact take that the right-wing analysts and talking heads and commentators have been saying for for four years, basically. And it can be summed up by the idea that Trump is an idiot who just says a lot of crap and sort of laugh at, they laugh it all off. Right, right. And he doesn't think about anything before he says it. And so therefore, literally, literally nothing matters. Mm -hmm. No matter what he says, we will never hold him accountable because the fact that he doesn't know anything and he says stupid crap is already baked into the cake. Okay. So it's, everything's all there. We will never hold him accountable. Now, Tell me something, Jay. Yeah. Name me another world leader in history that we have treated like this, basically the way I treat my six-year-old. I'll wait. Oh, that's right. You can't because it's stupid. The fact that this has become the excuse to get Trump off of everything is so incredibly bizarre to me. Like, remember with Benghazi? The big line from Hillary Clinton's hearings that the Republicans kept saying over and over and over again when she uh, it was when she said, what difference does it make? I mean, the question was something like, you know, what were you doing this and this and that? Or, you know, uh, you know, what policy do you have in place for this? And what difference does it make? Americans died. Mm -hmm. Uh, Republicans used these words for years against Hillary Clinton. Americans died in Benghazi and all Hillary had to say about it was what difference does it make? Could you imagine if the right were just like, yeah, you know, Hillary Clinton, she says a lot of stuff. Who cares? You know, she's she quite often just saying non-factual statements and bloviating over things she has no idea about. Let's just give her a pass. Why not? You know, better yet, let's take this a step further. Name me any job, any job, one that requires a person to communicate with customers where an employee would be given this kind of benefit of the doubt. Like if you worked at McDonald's, and every once in a while got a little crazy and started telling customers, like, don't eat that burger, it can kill you. Do you think the manager would just be like, oh, that's crazy Willie. Sometimes he says stupid and untrue stuff. Let's just let him stay. <laughs> like, no, your ass would get fired. So I'm sorry, 
But this is the best you can do, Ben? Like, this is clearly a moment where the left-wing commentators are being 100% more intellectually honest than the right-wingers. It's not even close. But one more thing here, and here's the smoking gun clip. And even Ben Shapiro kind of admits it's the smoking gun clip. This audio file should be played every 10 seconds on every single ad the Democrats put out from now until the election. Uh, You heard part of the clip before. Here is the clip and then uh, Shapiro's analysis of it. Go. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob, but just today and, and yesterday some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So give me a moment of talking to somebody going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to oh my god the gravity is uh almost inexplicable and unexplainable well i think bob really to be honest with you sure i want you to i wanted to uh i wanted to always play it down i still like playing it down yes because i don't want to create a panic right okay so that is the last quote right I always want to play it down. I still like playing it down. I always play it down. I still like playing it down. Checkmate, dude. Checkmate. Now, I'm going to go on a little mini Riz's rant That wasn't it? That wasn't it, no. (laughs) That that was just a warm-up, okay? (laughs) Okay, all right. This is criminal culpability right here. He admitted on tape that he purposely downplayed the severity of the virus. If the GOP can find criminal conduct with Hillary Clinton over Benghazi, which, by the way, they never did, then this is the most open and shut case of criminal liability in the history of our government. I'm no attorney, but I work in the legal industry and I know a ton of them, okay? Every attorney I've spoken with has told me that there absolutely could be a class action lawsuit here against the United States government, not only because of all the people whose lives could have been spared, but for all the people whose livelihoods were destroyed because Trump didn't want to, quote, incite a panic, so he says. So the two excuses I'm hearing the most from the right-wing commentators are, one, a Democratic president wouldn't have done anything different. Number two, Nancy Pelosi and Andrew Cuomo were downplaying it at the same time Trump was. Okay, so let's address number two first. Nancy Pelosi and Andrew Cuomo didn't have access to the level of intelligence that Trump did at the time. They didn't have a direct line also to Xi Jinping in China. Trump was talking to him daily and getting updates. Nancy Pelosi and Andrew Cuomo didn't have that. They were going off what they were hearing from the president. Uh, Further, Pelosi and Cuomo are not the president. A lot of Republican politicians are saying that Cuomo Cuomo in New York could actually see real jail time over his decision to ship old people back into nursing homes. If that's the case, good. Let them all fry, Republicans and Democrats. If Cuomo actually has blood on his hands after a thorough investigation and it, and it is determined that he was shipping old people back into nursing homes and, uh, you know, is responsible for those people getting sick, he should be tried for that as well. I'll, I'll take the partisanship right out of it on that one for you guys. The first question now, would a Democratic president have also done what Trump did and downplayed it? My gut tells me no, I don't think so. And I guess we'll never actually know. But we do know that Democrats always err on the side of overly cautious rather than underly 
utterly a word? Uh, you did as now. <laughs> okay. So if Hillary Clinton were president, she probably would have taken the thing very seriously. Half the country would have thought she was bad crazy and not listen to her anyway, but at least then she could have said she did all that she could. We might be in the exact same situation, but you know what? These hypotheticals don't actually matter because Hillary Clinton is not president and Donald Trump is. During a murder trial, the defense counsel doesn't ask the jury to determine if they'd kill that person in cold blood if they were in the murderer's shoes, do they? I mean, it just doesn't work that way. It's a stupid argument. And the bottom line here is that my contention from the beginning of this pandemic is still correct six months later, Jay. And that is that Donald Trump has blood on his hands and he should be tried accordingly. If not in a court of law, then at the very least at the ballot box. Rant done. Jay, what do you think? Did I miss anything? Did I get anything wrong? Give me your take. No. And I'm, I'm upset as you are about this. I think it's horrific. And it affected me greatly to hear and register this information. And I'm shocked, but not surprised that this is already yesterday's news. And there's no talk about any kind of accountability. But allow me to sort of add to this. There are some things that also bothered me that happened during this time and weren't called out in the same way, uh, one of which you just mentioned. Now, keep in mind, I'm not lessening the weight of this issue. I'm elevating other issues that I think we should be talking about in the same conversation. Now, as you've said, Nancy Pelosi was in Chinatown in February, telling everyone to come back to Chinatown, and there was nothing to panic about. And I have to imagine, despite what you've said, that she had access to at least some of the same information. She's the Speaker of the House. She's, she doesn't get her information just from the news. She gets briefings. And I agree with what you said here, and I'm glad you brought it up. And yes, if, if Trump should be held accountable for this, and it's true that Nancy Pelosi had this information and she was talking to people about coming back to Chinatown, then she, should be, in the, it, yeah. she should be in the same boat. Now, the other thing you didn't mention is you have Fauci with the masks. Now, I don't understand why at the time, and I, I, I knew this then. I'm like, they're saying this so they can save the masks for the hospitals. But knowing what we know now, why couldn't you have trusted the public and said something like, look, you don't need an N95 mask. You can wear a double ply bandana. The reason they downplayed the importance, like I said, was to maintain the supply of N95, specifically N95 masks for hospitals and doctors. Now, this was also life-saving information as well. And, you know, they make a massive difference. Look at Australia's flu season. They had the lowest flu season in a very long time because of these masks. They make a big difference. Huge. So these are two things that I think should also be part of this conversation. If we're holding him accountable, we should be holding the people in our government accountable across the board. And I have to, I also, you know, finally, I'd like to ask the question, which I haven't heard many people ask, why did Woodward wait for the book to come out to release these? I mean, I know why, but I don't think it was responsible for him to do so. Yeah, I, I mean, some people have have said that he held it back because he was trying to sell books and he wanted to affect the election. But Shapiro actually goes into in later on in that pod um, where he, where he he the the clips that we just played you guys. Um, he goes into the real reason he thinks Woodward held it back, which is that Woodward didn't believe him. Right. <laughs> you know, Woodward wasn't taking Trump seriously because nobody takes Trump seriously. Yeah. So he was like, I'm not gonna make a big thing of this. I don't even know if it's true. I don't, you know, remember in February, we were just starting to hear about this. Nobody knew anything. I still had a vacation plan. That's in fe- true. In February. But right. there have been, it, it took from February to, oh, when the book's coming out to mention mm-hmm. it. Now yeah. we knew that this was very deadly far before his book release date. Right. And he still right. didn't say anything. I think that that is, is a problem for me. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the only other thing I will say is that, uh, you know, you mentioned Fauci and the mass thing. Fauci did once once it was apparent that the uh, we had enough mass for the first responders and the people who needed it first. Yeah, he got right on the mat on board with the mass as did the Surgeon General. Um, and the only one who's never gotten on board with it really yeah. is Trump. They 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 forced Completely. him to go out there and say something about it, which yeah. he did once. And, uh, you know, since then, he was just today, he was downplaying the mask and saying a lot of people, you know, he always he's always like, well, a lot of people don't like it. You know, you're the president. He could have rallied the troops. He could have gotten up there and said this. And we know that he knew this. See, now see, this is why it's a smoking gun. Now we know what was going through his head in January and February. So if he was thinking that he could all it would have taken was one press conference like. My fellow Americans, I have some some bad news and some good news, okay? The bad news is that this virus that we're hearing about is really serious, okay? The bad, uh, you know, the, the good news is that we're going to stop it. We're going to stop it really, really quickly. And the way we stop it is I need your help. I need every single person to comply. Wear a mask, yeah. stay inside. Let's do this for two weeks. But he didn't do that. He laughed at it. He joked about it. He called it a hoax. That I mean, he was calling it a hoax. After those calls with Woodward. Oh, yeah. That's criminal. That is, is. criminal right yeah. there. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And, and by the way, I will vote for you for president, mm-hmm. as we already know. <laughs> yeah. You have my vote. Uh, and, and I agree with you about the mask. I just think as far as Fauci is concerned, you know, go put on a bandana around your face. is not a horrible thing to say. I think that that could have saved lives. I mean, put them all yeah. on a boat and sink it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, no, is, that totally. is my point. Totally. And I've been very critical of Cuomo. I don't understand why he's receiving uh, such great, uh, uh, you know, I think it's just because the the media has a, has a New York thing. Everything that happens in New York is the greatest and the best. Everyone who's in New York is, aren't they? Well, they are all from there. And all the politicians are the, the the New York politicians are the best politicians. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, except for Trump, of course. Um, And, and, you know, New York, New York, New York, I think Cuomo could do no wrong. If you actually look at his record, he massively screwed up. Now, the question remains, I I don't want to say he's guilty. I want to say we need to do an investigation into what he knew at the time when he was shipping old people back into nursing homes. I'm not saying it's all on Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I'm saying a lot of it is. He's yeah. the president of the United States. He's the CEO of the company. He's got to take the fall for this. And I, I really hope someone is held accountable eventually. You know, if he's just voted out in 2020 and uh, doesn't get to be president anymore, I guess I'll take that. But yeah. uh, the way I feel right now, I want I want further compensation. I really I'm do. With it. I'm with it. Anyway, uh, very quickly, we want to take you through a few more idiotic things that Trump did this week. And uh, you know, Ben and Shapiro last. put this yeah. best. I love this word picture that he came up with. He's like, he just keeps on stepping on rakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly what's happening. <laughs> yes. And in the spirit of down the middle, we're going we're, we're even going to give you a really, really, really good thing that happened under his watch this week. So first, Trump basically revealed to the world uh, how he's spending the vast amount of his time watching television. And uh, this is what that sounded like. I watch some of the shows. I watched Liz McDonald. She's fantastic. I watched uh, Fox Business. Uh, I watched uh, Lou Dobbs last night, Sean Hannity last night, Tucker last night, Laura. I watched uh, Fox and Friends in the morning. You watch these shows. Uh, you don't have to go too far into the details. They cover things that are, it's really an amazing thing. Now, if someone determined, some pundit dis- determined that this was like over eight hours of television in a single day. Yes, I'm sure the uh, the hearts and minds of our country have been set at ease 
knowing that the president spends most of his waking hours listening to loonbag crazies on Fox News. Can I tell you something? I watched I watched 10 yeah. minutes of CNN and Fox. I just flipped back and forth. I literally right. had to like go to the bathroom to throw up. It was <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. I had to change the channel. Yeah, so what a fabulous admission there, dude. Great Great job. Uh, Then he had an indoor rally in Nevada, which is against the laws of the state. Of course, uh, this is similar to what Nancy Pelosi did at the hair salon that we talked about last week. But of course, Trump doesn't really get hit for it because his outward appearance is that he doesn't give a So once again, think about this. Politicians get rewarded politically for not giving a So it's like it's like if they if they care then they get panned if something doesn't work out. But if they just say, I don't care about this, no one says anything because it's like it's, it's, it's baked into the cake. It's, become, it's also become the norm of what people want from their politicians is for them not to be politicians. And to them, that somehow equals I don't care. Right, right. So this is what Steve Sisolak, who's the governor of Nevada, had to say about this Trump rally. I thought it was uh, it was pretty good. Tonight, President Donald Trump is taking reckless and selfish actions that are putting countless lives in danger here in Nevada. Despite reports from his own White House, despite local officials in southern and northern Nevada reiterating to the venues the existing restrictions in state emergency directives, uh, tonight the president is knowingly packing thousands into an indoor venue to hold a political rally. The president appears to have forgotten that this country is still in the midst of a in the middle of a, of a global pandemic. Early on in this crisis, when it came time to exhibit real leadership and make difficult decisions to protect the American people, he failed to develop a unified national response strategy. To put it bluntly, he didn't have the guts to make tough choices. He left that to the governors and the states. Now he's decided he doesn't have to respect our own state laws. Uh, As usual, he doesn't believe the rules apply to him. Instead, he came into our state and blatantly disregarded the emergency directives and tough choices made to fight this pandemic and begin reopening our economy by hosting an indoor gathering that's categorized as high risk, according to his own CDC. That was a a great statement by the governor of Nevada, but I I also want to stress his own because Trump has a habit of doing this. And the right wing media sort of jumps right on the bandwagon. It's almost as if Trump wants to make it seem that he is alone and has no responsibility for anything that happens in his own government. The CDC works at the pleasure of Donald Trump. If he doesn't like what they're saying, he could fire them. But instead, he creates sort of this thing where they're against him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> where he has he has to make it seem like all these government agencies are against him. So he goes against his own CDC. I mean, just today He's having a, a, a war of words with the CDC director, a guy that works for him. Fire the guy. Bring in one of your, uh, you know, one of your sycophantic dudes. Do something. But it's just so ridiculous because I think so many people out there have such little knowledge of the government that they don't understand no, that it's don't. his government. They don't. That he yeah. runs for the sure CDC. That, for sure that's true. I, I, I say that maybe seven times a day when someone's talking about a government agency and I'm like, you realize they work for the, for the president. Right, exactly. So, so yeah, a great look from the president after we just found out that he admitted on tape how serious this thing is. Just brilliant. Uh, finally, it came out last week that while on a trip to Paris in 2018... This was all last week? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a trip to Paris in 2018, according to sources, Trump did not believe it was important to honor war dead. 
Uh, this is according to four sources, apparently. Uh, in a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, quote, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. Uh, in a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Bella Woods as, quote, suckers for getting killed. Trump, of course, completely denies saying any of this. Now, do I believe he said this? Absolutely, I do. It falls in line with what we know about Trump's character. It sounds like him. Yeah. It really does. Uh, what, what we've seen with our very own eyes and heard with our very own ears. But this report received a lot of criticism because it was based on reports from unknown sources. Now, right. it should be noted that Fox News, no left-wing news outlet, of course, confirmed the sources. But I still ultimately think this kind of reporting is counterproductive. It's yeah. like it's it's like a catnip for people who hate Trump already. Yeah. And then further proof that the media is out to get Trump and lie about him for people who love Trump. So it, it just really pins us deeper into to our own corners. I don't. I don't think it moves the needle really. Do you agree with that, Jack? I completely agree. I think uh, yeah. uh, unnamed sources. It just doesn't do anything for anybody. Come, come to us with something that's that's uh, yeah, you know, real. But that doesn't mean I don't believe it. Yeah, honestly, that's yeah, fine. yeah. So um, anyway, let's get to some good Trump stuff. Okay, yeah. now outside of all of the idiocy and Trump shooting himself in the foot, it was also the most important week of his presidency in some sense, and perhaps the greatest achievement of his presidency came into fruition. So uh, tell us a little bit about that, Jay. I will. Uh, this past Tuesday at the White House in Washington, President Trump, joined by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, sat down to sign a normalization pact with Israel named the Abraham Accord. This accord marks the third and fourth countries after Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1994 to formally normalize its relationship with Israel and is the first Persian Gulf country to do so. It's a very, very big deal. It seems uh, that this is the feather in the president's cap, as it should be. Trump motioned that he's lining up, quote, at least five or six more countries to join the accord. Of course, just as Netanyahu concluded his statement at the White House, the Israeli cities of Ashkelon and Ashdod fell under rocket attacks from militants in the Gaza Strip. The president claims that he has, uh, quote, been given very strong signals from the Palestinians that they'd like to be a part of what's happening. This deal not only puts pressure on the Palestinians to come to an agreement, but it also aligns countries against a common geopolitical foe in Iran. Mm -hmm. Jared Kushner was on the morning shows on Tuesday as he's taken a leading role in crafting the administration's uh, Middle East foreign policy. And I got to be honest with you, when they put him uh, in charge of this, I never thought that we'd be sitting here talking about it. I was very skeptical about it, too. But his, uh, we got a quote from him, and it goes like this. How do you get Palestinians to the table, though? That's at the center of the issue. And those larger trouble spots, whether it's borders, the future of Jerusalem, the settlement, that's not addressed by this agreement. Yeah, well, those issues aren't as complicated as people have made them out to be. President Trump's motto has been peace through strength. And by being strong and by building alliances and by doing what he thinks is right and not pandering or lecturing, he's been able to bring people to the table to do things they haven't done before. We can't want peace more than other people want peace. And I think that American diplomats in the past have been too eager for deals. President Trump doesn't chase deals. He makes deals when they're ready, but he will engage. A lot of people told him not to spend time on the Middle East. They said that you don't make money betting on success in the Middle East. 
President Trump said this is essential. We have so many troops there. Uh, he'd like to bring our troops home to America. He'd like to end these wars. And so he, he, and, he and tried to do it. And he took a different approach than people took. And it's working. So with regards to the Palestinians, I think with time that will come. But what you're doing now is bringing people together. And so they have a territorial dispute with Israel. But the reality is, is this opens up uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque to Muslims uh, from throughout the world who can now travel through Abu Dhabi or Bahrain uh, to go to Israel and visit the mosque. So this will hopefully reduce tension in the region, bring people closer together, and long-term make the Middle East much more stable. You heard it first. President Trump doesn't chase deals. He makes deals. I think that was a line from his book. (laughs) Totally. Um, Yeah, I I will say that, I mean, first of all, Jay, do you have anything more to say about this deal? Uh, I think it's it's a fantastic deal. I'm very, very excited about it. I'm excited of what it means for Israel. I mean, we were just talking. We did a whole episode on this uh, subject exactly. And yeah. I think it. I wish we could do a whole. If if Trump would just shut the hell up, we could do a whole episode on this. I agree. Topic because it is that important. This is a it really is. really big deal, guys. Yes. I mean, and and uh, I have totally bought into the peace by strength, peace through strength, rather I should say. Yeah. You know, which which I I used to be on the fence about it, but this is an example of how it really worked, and having more countries behind Israel in this region, it, it's it's really how it has to happen, and. Despite mm-hmm. some of the things that that has been that have been going on with Netanyahu, mm-hmm. he's really the leader for this job, and he's done an amazing, amazing job doing it. He has, he has. Now, I I wouldn't be me if I didn't give a subtle dig to to Donald Trump. So here's the thing: I just walked you through right wing media's take on the Woodward revelations, which are basically that Trump is an idiot who doesn't understand anything, and therefore we shouldn't take anything he says or does seriously in any way. So in keeping with that sentiment and attempting to create some level of consistency here, I'm going to assume that Trump himself doesn't understand even a little bit of the complexity of this arrangement in the Middle East and that he has nothing to do with making it happen or he had nothing to do with making it happen, right? Like I said, Jared Kushner made the rounds on Tuesday morning to talk about the peace deal. There you go. So let's have some consistency here is all I'm saying. I know a president gets credit for everything good that happens in his administration, but then don't tell me he gets no blame for the pandemic response. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, all in all, we want everyone to know this is a fantastic, fantastic thing. Uh, but it doesn't just stop there, Jay, because Donald Trump, we found out, did something. Well, it wasn't this week, but we found out something awesome about Donald yeah. Trump this week. It's almost as so, great as the peace accord, honestly. It's oh, you know what? Honestly, it could be even better. Yeah. So, so on an entirely different good Trump topic. Rolling Stone is reporting the following. In a newly released excerpt from the book by Sarah from a book by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the former White House press secretary reveals that Donald Trump told her and former White House communications director Hope Hicks to add Guns N' Roses November Rain to his rally playback in 2018. Quote, he told us it was the quote greatest music video of all time, Sanders writes. Quote, and made us watch it to prove his point, even though neither of us disagreed. Fact check true, Donald J. Trump. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, not only is November Rain one of the best songs ever, it is legitimately the greatest video of all time. And the fact that Donald Trump recognizes that, yeah. I almost am willing to vote for him. If he sends out, I'll, I'll, make, you, I'll make you a deal, Jay. Okay, all right, I'm listening. If between now and the election, yeah. he sends out a tweet saying, the best thing to ever come out of Long Island is Glassjaw, he's got my vote. That's fair. 
That's fair. <laughs> there you go. He's got my vote. Okay. I like Trump pontificating on this stuff. It's the best Trump has been. I wish he'd do it more often. Oh, I'd love to more hear guns this. and roses. Yeah. In fact, if I'd vote for him, you know what? I'll make another amendment. I will vote for him if he puts Axel Rose as his as his chief of staff. <laughs> that would be amazing. Could you imagine? <laughs> you, think, you think that's possible? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's Trump. Yeah, yeah. Anything's possible. Anything, anything's possible. Okay. If Trump tells me that, if he gives me a guarantee that Axel Rose will be the chief of staff, I'll vote for him in 2020. All right. Sounds good. That's the good, the the, the good Trump right there. So moving on, uh, we've got some topic of the day action, don't we, Jay? We do. Here's the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Okay, so the topic of the day this week in the wake of all the tremendously horrible fires that we're seeing out west is going to be mainly on the topic of environmental regulation. Before we continue, uh, Jay and I want to send our deepest condolences to the victims of these fires. There has been quite a few deaths this season so far and an overwhelming amount of property lost millions of acres. It's really sad, and we encourage everyone to donate to Red Cross or other organizations that will help allocate some of those funds to the people who uh, need it most and are in uh, need of help right now. Um, so before we go any further, I believe Justin has a buzzed history prep for us, uh, you know, sort of about this topic. So tell us about that, Jay. Buzzed history, go. Buzzed history. Hello, and welcome to Buzzed History. This week, we're going to be taking a look at the history of the environmental movement. The truth is that concern for air and water pollution's impact on human life dates back to Roman times. Pollution was linked to the spread of epidemic disease in Europe between the late 14th century and the mid-16th century, and soil conservation was practiced in China, India, and Peru as early as 2,000 years ago. However, these concerns did not give rise to political activism or government regulation. The contemporary environmental movement arose primarily from concerns in the late 19th century about the protection of the countryside in Europe and the wilderness in the United States and the health consequences of pollution during the Industrial Revolution. It was within this century where Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1835 wrote Nature, encouraging us to appreciate the natural world for its own sake and proposing a limit on human expansion into the wilderness. Botanist William Bartram and ornithologist James Audubon dedicated themselves to the conservation of wildlife. Additionally, around this time period, Henry David Thoreau wrote the ecological treatise Walden, which has inspired generations of environmentalists. In a little snippet of information I'm sure you'll find surprising, liberalism of the time held that all social problems, including environmental ones, should be solved through the free market. However, most early environmentalists believed that government should be tasked with protecting the environment. At the turn of the century, the first national parks were established in the United States, Yellowstone in 1872, Sequoia in 1890, and Grand Canyon in 1901. The first conservation groups popped up around this time as well. The National Audubon Society formed in 1886 to save plume birds from ladies' hatters. John Weir began the Sierra Club in order to defend Yosemite National Park. In 1918, Save the Redwoods League, well, began saving the redwoods. Gifford Pinchot, the first chief of the U.S. Forest Service, envisioned one of the earliest philosophies of resource conservation, representing an efficient use of resources. A more bio-forward approach could be found in the philosophy of aforementioned preservationist John Weir and Aldo Leopold, a professor of wildlife management who was central to the designation of Gill National Forest in New Mexico in 1924 as America's first national wilderness area. Aldo Leopold also started the Wilderness Society in 1935 to meet this end as well. Leopold introduced the concept of a land ethic, arguing that humans should transform themselves from conquerors of nature into citizens of nature. For further reading, check out A Sand County Almanac, 
which had a significant influence on later biocentric environmentalists. There were a host of environmental organizations established from the late 19th to mid 20th century. However, these were primarily middle class lobbying groups concerned with nature conservation, wildlife protection, and the pollution that resulted from industrial development and urbanization. There were also scientific organizations concerned with natural history and biological aspects of conservation efforts. The beginning of the 1960s saw the establishment of green political movements in the form of activist, non-governmental organizations or NGOs, and environmentalist political parties. There were unifying themes to these organizations, a protection of the environment, grassroots democracy, social justice, and nonviolence. However, there were a small number of environmental groups and individual activists who chose to engage in eco-terrorism. These groups and people viewed violence as a justified response to what they considered the violent treatment of nature by interests including the logging and mining industries. The goal of the groups that lobbied the government focused on changing government policy and promoting environmental social values. Examples of these can be seen in the protests in the United States against nuclear power development following the accidents at Three Mile Island in Chernobyl. Campaigns launched by these early groups involved direct protest actions designed to obstruct and draw attention to environmentally harmful policies and projects. Other strategies were less disruptive, including public education and media campaigns, community-directed activities, and conventional lobbying of policymakers and political representatives. Additionally, projects such as recycling, buying green, self-sufficient farms, workers' co-ops, and co-op housing projects were birthed. The tide began to turn in the following years, as Barry Commoner protested against testing, Rachel Carson's 1962 book Silent Spring was released, and Paul R. Ehrlich's The Population Bomb came out in 1968. This is truly the moment where we saw activism take the form of policy. Kicked off in 1963 by congressional passage of the Clean Air Act and the ratification of the Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which ended the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, underwater, and in space. In 1964, the Wilderness Act passed, which set aside $9.1 million to be preserved in perpetuity. Congress eventually added National Forest, National Park, and Bureau of Land Management lands to the system, growing it to 100 million acres. 1967 saw the founding of the Environmental Defense Fund and the beginning of litigation to ban the pesticide DDT. At the same time, Yale Law grads formed the National Resources Defense Council in order to take on the Storm King hydroelectric plant. 1970 kicks off with the National Environmental Policy Act, which mandated environmental impact reviews and became an extremely powerful tool. The Clean Air Act was extended and established national air quality standards and regulated auto emissions. President Nixon formed the Environmental Protection Agency in reaction to a massive surge in public concern about environmental issues. Earth Day was conceived, and in its wake, a new environmental movement was born. In 1972, the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment was held in Stockholm, and for the first time, united the representatives of multiple governments in discussion relating to the state of the global environment. This conference led directly to the creation of the government environmental agencies and the UN Environment Program. What followed this conference and the campaigns and protests surrounding Earth Day is a dizzying amount of legislation, including the Water Pollution Control Act Amendments of 1972, the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act of 1972, the Endangered Species Act of 1973, the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act of 1976, the Water Pollution Control Act of 1977, the Superfund Act of 1980, which regulated public drinking water systems, toxic substances, pesticides, and ocean dumping, and protected wildlife wilderness and wild and scenic rivers, and provided for pollution research, contaminated site cleanup, monitoring, and enforcement. At the dawn of the 80s, the movement began to hit continued snags, starting with the appointment of James G. Watt as Secretary of the Interior by then-President Ronald Reagan. Watt was called one of the most, quote, blatantly anti-environmental political appointees. 
As the economic boom of the 80s continued with the loosening of and backlash against environmental regulation, the wise use movement gained importance and influence. This was a coalition of groups promoting the expansion of private property rights and reduction of government regulation of publicly held property. This stall has echoed through modern day. Despite the existence of summits, endangered species lists, protests, rallies, documentaries, and changes in all sorts of policies that are pro and anti-environment. Unfortunately, this is an issue that is almost always politicized. Yet we find ourselves here and now enduring record heat, record droughts, and raging wildfires. To be continued, I suppose. Buzz history. Very good, Jay. That was probably my favorite buzz history you've done so far. Thank you. Thank you very really much. Really enjoyed that one. And, and it was very interesting. I mean, I guess there really is a history uh, of the Republicans and Democrats very much disagreeing on this. Most certainly. I think the Republicans have always taken the, the, the position that uh, the environmental regulations, when dialed too far in one direction, are bad for business. Well, so let's take it, let's take it to uh, the current era right now. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit, Jay, on who or what is to blame for the fires that we're seeing yeah, in the A lot the of conversation right around this right now. Right. Yeah. Because it's not as simple as just yelling climate change, just like it's not as simple as yelling bad forest management, right? So, so what's your take? Yeah, once again, all of these things are nuanced conversations, and mm-hmm. we wouldn't we wouldn't have a podcast if all we needed to do was yell one of those two things. Right at the the meeting between Gavin Newsom and Trump, and uh, that happened recently, uh, they you know Gavin Newsom said it was both. He said it very right. clearly. Yeah, uh, he you know, he made commitments to double the management effort over the next twenty years because of that. Mm-hmm. Now the issue I think that people should be talking about with climate change is that while it exists, it isn't going to fix anything right now. This is it's that what we're experiencing isn't even an effect from when Obama was in office. It's, it's long. Cu- game. It's cumulative over a yeah. very, very long period of time. And mm-hmm. to fix it will take just as much or more time. So these wildfires are due to climate change. But as a result, mm-hmm. we should absolutely well, partly due to climate change. But as a result, we should be paying way more attention to what we can do right now, which is forest management. So we're saying, right. this, you know, we're saying the same thing. It's like it's both. And whether it's due right. to climate change or not, these wildfires can be lessened by forest management. Let's do that. You know, the Republicans lately, uh, since these fires have really gone bad, have been blaming, uh, again, Democratic run cities and states for uh, for not managing their forests properly. But I do want to go over some facts here in California of the 33 million acres of forests in California, roughly 57 percent. Is the are fed- owned is and land. managed by the U.S. Forest Service and, for, and Federal Bureau of Land Management. That's right. Um, right. So we can't put all of the blame on the state's forest management. No, the, the next thing I was going to say was that we have to change federal and state policy and, right. and roll back the regulations and blocks that are preventing the management of these forests. Both. Right. They need to work together, which is, I'm sure, a problem at this moment. Yeah. Now, I think you and I can both agree on the fact, I mean, we have both agreed on the fact right now that it's a combination of several factors. Yes. And we have to include both climate change and insufficient forest management. Uh, However, the politics of climate change are truly stunning to me and have been for a long time. I mean, Jay, tell me, what is it about, you know, as a conservative, what is it about the topic of climate change that is so controversial and almost toxic to conservatives writ large. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I've had to do some research on this, too, because you obviously know, you know, coming from what I just said, where I stand on this issue. Yeah. Uh, so the the number one conservative argument that I've I've come up with uh, that I, I in, in doing all this research that it, it this isn't necessarily climate change or or there is climate change, but it's cyclical. It's not human error. 
necessarily. It's just part of, and while human error maybe, maybe has um, sped it up, right? It's, it was yeah. going to happen anyway. And so okay. the same way we had an ice age and now we don't, you know, this, this comes cyclically. Yeah. But I mean, if you look, if you look at the, at the graphs, it's really not, I, I agree that there are certain cyclical elements of it, but the way the graph just shoots up basically in the industrial, from the industrial rage to now, industrial aged till now is pretty shocking. I mean, we are pumping CO2 into the air. I mean, you do agree with that, right? I, I agree with all of this. This is not yeah. my argument. This is okay. what, I, what, what the conservative argument is, okay. and then we can sort of dive into it. So I have okay. a quote from Got Marco it. Rubio here, mm-hmm. and his quote is, humanity and its behavior, scientists say, is contributing to that, uh, meaning the, the, the climate change. I can't tell you to what percentage it's contributing, and many scientists would debate the percentage is, contri- is contrib- contributable to man versus normal fluctuations. But there is a rise in sea level. Temperatures are warmer in the waters than they were 50, 80, 100 years ago. That's measurable. So here you see exactly what the thing is, right? No one's disputing that climate is changing. Some people are saying it's, it's mostly human error, and some people are saying it's really not human error at all. That's the nuance in this conversation. Right. So George Fulner, a researcher for climate impact research in 2010, while discussing something called the Little Ice Age, which occurred a few centuries ago, expressed that our climate has experienced much more dramatic change than the Little Ice Age. Over the past 400,000 years, the planet has experienced Ice Age conditions punctuated every 100,000 years or so by brief warm intervals. These warm periods, which are called interglacials, typically last around 10,000 years. Now, our current interglacial at the time of this study in 2010 was around 11,000 years from that. He was responding to the question of could we be on the brink of the end of the interglacial Uh, But what's found in the posing of this question that when you zoom out is that the Earth, of course, experiences warm periods. If you look into this, you see that where researchers are are saying that because of the the current carbon dioxide levels is that another glacial or mini ice age will most likely be pushed off because of the current levels. So it doesn't really stick. Uh, That's the issue. But that's the nuance of the conversation is that one one side of the argument is saying this is done because of human error and and, and, and all the emissions from China and all these, these related countries. And the other people are saying this isn't human error. They may have been sped up a little bit by humans, but it was mm-hmm. it was going to bound to happen. Uh, this is a normal cycle of the Earth. Okay. Um, so you know, in responding to that, uh, you know, Joe Biden gave a speech this week on the topic of climate change again in the wake of all these devastating fires that we're having out here. And a big theme of the speech was, you know, I follow the science. I believe in science. Now it seems crazy to me that this should be such a controversial issue, but we are so damn polarized in this day and age that science in and of itself has become political. I mean, I hear a lot of right-wingers all the time talking about how scientists have either left-wing motivations or are being funded by left-wing groups to come up with results that the left likes. I mean, you can say what you want, but this is a mainstream contention of today's uh, political right, absolutely. I mean, don't you agree with that, Jay? I completely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, or you know, or they'll downplay the severity of something like climate change by citing a true stat that doesn't sound as bad as it actually is. So, to give an example, like Rush Limbaugh has been saying that climate change hasn't contributed anything to these fires, and he'll cite the three degrees Celsius figure, which is on average how much hotter I guess the Earth has 
gotten over the last hundred years or so. Mm -hmm. And he'll say something like, you know, what's more likely to have caused these fires? Dumb liberal governance that refuses to do controlled burns of their forests or the fact that the earth has gotten three degrees hotter? You know, and to somebody who is just a casual observer, they may be inclined to think three degrees isn't a big deal, but it is. I mean, it's a very big deal. That three degree difference makes the brush extraordinarily drier, which in turn fuels the fire. So that's sort of uh, more of that what I like to call right wing sleight of hand. The number three doesn't sound like a big number, but it's very meaningful. So, uh, you know, in closing with this, for me, at least, I want to play one more clip of Ben Shapiro uh, making fun of the fact that those on the left are always crying science and are pissed that our president doesn't seem to ever want to acknowledge scientific fact. Here's what that sounded like. Last clip of the day. And this has become the theme of the day. Trump hates science. Trump hates. Now, do I think that Donald Trump knows the first thing about science? No. I really like I, I see no evidence that Donald Trump sits around in his spare time reading pop science books. I don't think he subscribes to Scientific American. I don't think that's his thing. But let's say that Trump believed wholeheartedly in the realities and threats of climate change. Would that mean that the wildfires wouldn't have just occurred? No. We had wildfires all throughout the Obama administration. This is not how science works. Science doesn't work by you shouting you believe in it, like a religious totem at the top of your lungs, and then the universe leaves you alone. Like you stand in the face of a hurricane, you go, climate change is real! And then the hurricane's like, well, I guess we're done here. I guess I'm just gonna move right out to sea. You said climate change is real. I guess we're finished here. Now, wait a minute here, Jay. Yeah. We went over this a bit last week, but this is coming from a guy and from an entire political ideology that said that Barack Obama's refusal to use the term radical Islamic terrorism was the single most embarrassing part of his presidency. And we played the clip of Obama responding to that last week, you know, mm -hmm. it, the idea that if he were to use those magical words, all the terrorists would magically transform into Gandhi and put their guns down. Well, here you have a guy who is considered the leader of the conservative intellectual movement saying how ridiculous it is that liberals think saying I believe in science will help stop climate change. It's a bad faith ridiculous argument. You could use this kind of twisted logic to apply to anything. Conservatives yeah. to this day are lecturing about the dangers of teenage sex. Sure as hell hasn't stopped teenagers from engaging in it, has it? it certainly has I mean, the point. No, the point is you draw attention to things that are dangerous in the hope that meaningful change derives out of starting a conversation about it. I want my president to acknowledge climate science. That that is extremely important to me. So, uh, you know, so far he's called climate change a Chinese hoax, something mm -hmm. that isn't real. He scoffed at the idea that the scientists understand any of this right. so nobody is screaming that trump hates science because we think that if he were suddenly to become a scientist the problems of climate change would magically disappear we're saying trump hates science because it seems as though he legitimately does and we are coming dangerously close to the point where if we don't do something about this i personally believe it is going to be too late what is your take, Jay? Well, some science already, you know, says that it might be too late. I mean, there's studies right. that say that if we stop now, uh, we can sort of curtail some of this. And if in some science says that it's too late to do anything. Yeah. Like I said, my issue with it is, I mean, I hate that we're politicizing science. It's really annoying to me. Yeah. Climate change. I think the problem is what frustrates at least me and maybe some other people on the right. 
you know, the science also says a couple of other things, right? You mentioned already the state of California over the past century, which is a hundred years, the temperature has risen three degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. right? So if yeah, we I think see... I said Celsius, it's Fahrenheit, isn't it? I have written Fahrenheit. I am uh, totally ignorant. You could put this on the record. I am totally ignorant to uh, the metric system. So go ahead. Okay. Uh, if we ceased all carbon emissions, right, went completely to zero, we would reduce global warming by 0.172 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. Yeah, I've and, heard these know, figures. Yeah. Exactly. We went by the Paris Agreement. If all the countries did this, it's the same degrees, right? Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's not a lot. Not that we shouldn't be doing it. My right. point is this. We need to do more than just scream about climate change. We need, or, or even work to fix it. We need to scream about more things. We need to scream about forest management. Right. There's a story related to power lines and fires that, you, that you'll hear in our interview with Santa Monica Pete that's coming up uh, tomorrow that highlights this issue clearly. Actually, let's preview that clip. I can tell you about a project I worked on for about a year where a utility company in the state is trying to upgrade their power lines to avoid the kind of fires and the situations that we've been having. And the state of California, various entities in the state of California have made it next to impossible. It's something that should have happened within a year or two or three yeah. has taken 10. In the meantime, those lines are sparking together and causing fires and, and they just don't seem to get it. I think what he said in that story that, you know, people will hear more about, it's poignant as far as regulation is concerned, mm -hmm. overregulation in cities, environmental regulations. I mean, the reason that we can't do controlled burning of forests is because of the Clean Air Act. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't there sort of a risk-benefit analysis to all of this? I mean, yes. isn't that sort of the problem? Are these mitigation effects going to help? How much are they going to help? You need the data. And I think the data is sort of hard to come by. It's disputed. But what we don't need is for people to say, this doesn't exist. I agree with you. I yeah. completely agree with you. But yeah. the, the data, as far as the controlled burns go, there was a very big study. It was done. And it showed that we need to be burning 20 million acres of forest in yeah. order to get our, our, our forests under control and wildlife under control. That's and that was, has been prevented completely because of the Clean Air Act. So Air. We, we just have to start rolling these things back where they make sense. I'm not an right. anti-environmentalist, but we right. need to be able to live as human beings and not worry about our kids' schools getting burned down. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that the Clean Air Act, um, the the environmental intention of the Clean Air Act was to obviously make the, the air cleaner. So we're not going to do any controlled burns anymore because that makes the air worse. Yeah. But the repercussions of not doing those uh, controlled burns are actually worse for the environment than the controlled burns would have been. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like if you look at some of the 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 regulation information, yeah. uh, I think the president is doing all of this all wrong. You yeah, know, for course, example, always. like we said uh, last week, violence is spiking everywhere, specifically the murder rate, right? Not yeah. just Democrat-controlled cities, everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's related, you know, the riot-related violence, fine, in Democrat-run states, but it's happening everywhere the murder rate is going up. So yeah. people are paying real attention. The regulation in Democratic-governed and mayored states and cities is the real problem. And this is just one example of that. Now, try running against that platform. You'd have a hard time doing so. I right. think they're miss the Republicans are missing the boat entirely. Yeah. Um, you know, Jay, that's uh, that's interesting. It's an interesting point. We have a lot. We talked a lot about that with uh, with our friend Santa Monica Pete, who we interviewed this week. We are we're calling him Santa Monica Pete because we are uh, disguising his name um, for uh, for political reasons, if you will. Uh, yeah. it, he has a really interesting story 
Uh, it's a story about regulation um, in California, especially in the city of Santa Monica, uh, where he lives. And I think you guys will find it interesting. We are uh, have seen, J- Justin and I have seen the effects of life on uh, cities uh, like LA that are very, very highly regulated, and they're not yeah. always positive. No. So, And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. We're also next week going to get into voting, and it's one of the things we've never talked about. We never, we have not talked about in, in 16 episodes. We have not talked about the Electoral College. I don't we think brought it once. No. We haven't even brought it up. That's something we're going to talk about. We're also going to have a special guest next week who's going to be on for the entire show. It's going to be sort of a regular episode, but uh, but with three people, and uh, we have some big announcements to make. So uh, again, I think that's pretty much all we got for you. We hope you guys enjoy. We went through a lot of stuff today. Sure Jay, have anything to add? I got one more thing. Go. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on the air. Follow us on social media, at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. How many stars, Mr. Riz? Only five stars. Anything less is not good enough. That's true. You can visit me at, at Justin Siegel on all the socials, and you can visit Riz at Rob underscore Lifer at Instagram. The most handsome. The undisputed most handsome Rob Lifer on Facebook. Of yes. the world. <laughs> My regular Pierce Brosnan, only not. And uh, and and Rob Lifer at Rob Lifer on Twitter. Although nobody seems to give a crap about Twitter anymore. No, that's a um, thing. I think we still have like we have like four Twitter followers. Yeah, I but mean, we, don't bo- don't bother following us on Twitter. No one's yeah, no one's there. It's fine. But but we're blowing up everywhere else. We yeah. are blowing up. We have big announcements, big things coming, and uh, put it on your calendars. The uh, first ever live stream, Jay. That's very gonna exciting. be fun. I'm very yeah, excited. I gotta get in shape for that. Yeah, yeah, and we keep on climbing the uh, the uh, Apple Podcast chart. So mm-hmm. thank you guys for listening and and keeping us on the chart. Yep. Uh, keep keep it up because we like being on there. It's fun to see. Yeah, uh, make sure to visit our Discord. You can mix it up with us, talk politics. The link is on our socials, and buy some of our merch. Wow, your friends, wow them by promoting what the world needs now: moderate change, incrementally. Uh, check it out: t shirts, mugs, all kinds of stuff. The links are in our bio. And that is all I got, Riz. I got no yep. more words. Indoctrinate your kids into moderate values, please. Start today. Yep, right now. Yeah. <laughs> all <laughs> right, right, guys. Uh, it was a great episode. Sorry we were a day late today. The reason we were a day late was because we had to push these, the interview and everything, and the schedule got just a little bit messed up. But uh, we will be back on track, hopefully, for you next week. And uh, we're on a roll. Keep listening. Keep downloading. Turn on your friends. We want to climb up the charts. I want to be at 50 in Whoa. like in like a month. All right, we can do it. All right. All right, guys. Have a good night. Have a good night. Bye.